Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Jonathan Haber about his book, Critical Thinking. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Trevor. Great to be on. I'm wondering if we can begin our conversation by having you share a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I am a uh, educational consultant and researcher. I uh, live in the Boston area, although I work in, in different places around the country and different projects. And um, I guess my background, I, I actually have a, a um, entrepreneurial background. I, I ran a, started and ran a company for many, many years. And that company was um, kind of mostly working in, in the employment industry. So when I sold and left, I decided I really wanted to get involved with education. I'd done some education work at the company I'd sold. So I worked for an educational publisher for a while and then kind of started doing my own projects. And uh, I, I created a uh, cur- curriculum on critical thinking. That was my first sort of, of um, product, if you will, on critical thinking. It was called Critical Voter. I used the 2012 election to teach critical thinking skills, and that sort of developed a lot of my ideas on, on what constitutes critical thinking. Um, over the years, I I'd, uh, turned that into actually turned critical voter into a book in time for the 2016 election, and then most recently, uh, in addition to the new book, which is part of the MIT Press Essential series, which is a series of short books on complex topics, uh, often in philosophy and technology, to help people get their hands around concepts that they might have heard of, but don't really fully understand. So that was um, what the the new book was all about. But I've also developed a set of high leverage teaching practices for integrating the teaching of critical thinking skills into traditional K-12 courses, uh, ELA, math, science, social studies, as well as uh, how strategies for improving critical thinking instruction in higher education. Can you talk a little bit more about which of your experiences as a student or professionally um, 
made you interested in critical thinking and, and which of those experiences kind of shaped your views on education in general? I think probably it was an interest I took uh, towards the end of my, my career in business. I, I took an interest in philosophy and sort of was self-taught, uh, you know, took a lot of, took a lot, you know, studied a lot of courses or read, read a lot of books, you know, great courses um, on my, on my iPod at the time. And, and in that I sort of learned the sort of philosopher's toolkit, which I think is not synonymous with critical thinking, but uh uh, critical thinking was sort of tremendously influenced by philosophy. Um, in in two thir- 2013, I did a interesting kind of educational research project, a public research project. Uh, at the time, massive open online courses were in the news. These were courses given by you know major universities for free online through companies like edX and Coursera. And I, at the time, I wanted to sort of determine were these the equivalent of college courses, really truly the equivalent of college courses in terms of workload, in terms of scope and coverage. So I did a one-year project where I took 32 of them, uh, the equivalent of undergraduate degree. In fact, I, I uh, sort of mapped my course load based on an undergraduate degree at a liberal arts college. Um, and through that, I, I learned a lot about online learning, about massive open courses. I wrote about the experience um, and wrote about MOOCs, you know, on a daily basis, interviewed and talked with many major uh, players in the MOOC field. And I'd say that sort of really influenced my kind of, of uh, appreciation of the potential of technology for democratizing education. Uh, one of those courses uh, was on critical thinking. It was a course out of Duke uh, called Think Again. That was actually the very first MOOC I took. And so that sort of got me interested in channeling my sort of philosophical interest uh, because as, as my major during this sort of faux BA, the sort of one-year MOOC BA was philosophy. And then since then, I think I've just been sort of refining uh, a sort of set of concepts and skills that I refer to as practical critical thinking. That's what the critical voter sort of curriculum is built around. But then I'd say most recently, I found that there's a lot of sort of misconceptions and misunderstandings about what critical thinking is. You know, can it be defined? Can it be taught? And so the new book was really addressing that. It was less another, it wasn't so much another how to book, it was more kind of addressing some of these myths, if you will, surrounding the concept of critical thinking. So what is critical thinking? How would you define it? Well, you know, I, I'm glad that question comes up and, 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 you know, all the kind of interviews I'm doing because there, there's uh, the first myth I would say is that we don't know what it is that critical thinking is, is uh, undefined. And, and also there's an implication that until we can define it, uh, we can't do anything about it. We can't sort of teach and prepare students uh, for being better at it. And I think the reason that's a myth is that, you know, there actually are, um, it's not that there's no definition for critical thinking. There are a number of definitions that uh, people who are in the critical thinking, you know, research space, particularly in higher education, sort of uh, discuss and debate, but doesn't mean there's not, there isn't a sort of consensus on what constitutes being a critical thinker. I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind is actually critical thinking 
has an origin point, right? It's it's 1910. Uh, John Dewey, probably one of the most well-known American intellectuals of all time, but also particularly famous in education. He wrote a book called How We Think. And in that, he defined the concept of reflective thinking, which was the first time there was a sort of notion that there's a form of thinking distinct from wisdom, distinct from intelligence, uh, that was really about sort of applying um, scientific reasoning principles to everyday thought processes. Now, over the next hundred plus years, you've had a number of other scholars who've worked on other definitions that took into account uh, different specific skills, human dispositions required to be a critical thinker. And, and over time, you know, those definitions have um, not collided, but I would say they've informed a uh, kind of a three-part model for critical thinking that I would say there is broad consensus that sort of these definitions converge to. The critical thinking is really a set of fundamental knowledge, right? There are certain things you need to know to be a critical thinking, critical thinker, right? You need to know logic of some form, some way to organize your thinking. Now, it doesn't have to be any one form of logic. It could be an informal logic or some of the graphical forms of logic, like argument maps or Pullman diagrams, um, um, as well as, you know, potentially um, symbolic logic, more sophisticated forms of logic. But you can't go into the critical thinking game without having your thinking organized in some way. There's also language skills required. There's the, the need to translate sort of everyday discourse, everyday language, whether it's in a conversation or an editorial or an advertisement, sort of translate that into structured statements that can be analyzed using tools of logic. Uh, in critical voter, and I've heard of practical critical thinking, and also take a concept of background knowledge, which is vitally important. You can't sort of uh, think critically about something unless you know what you're talking about, but extended that into modern fields like uh, uh, media and information literacy. And so that's the sort of knowledge base. Then there's a skills base, right? It's no good to know the rules of logic if you're not good at applying them. Uh, so you need to have the experience, you need to have the skills to apply your translation skills, your logic skills, all these skills in many, many diverse situations. So, so there's a skills kind of, uh, component to being a critical thinker. And finally, there's a dispositional component. So there's, uh, these are sort of you know, personality traits, psychological dispositions that you have to want to think critically. You have to want to think logically. You have to be ready to sort of put your biases aside when you want to reflect on something important, you know, it's no good if you're, you know, you've mastered a form of logic, for example, and are extremely good at applying it, but choose not to apply it to situations where you've kind of already made up your mind for reasons other having other than having reasoned your way to a position. So I'd say, you know, if there is a definition of critical thinking, it's sort of of those three pieces. And we could quibble about, you know, the edges, right? Where does creativity fit into all this? But, you know, the, the reason I, I describe it as a myth that because we don't have a, uh, a consensus wording as to the definite critical thinking, there's a sense that we can't do anything about it. And I think that's just uh, not true, right? You know, all fields, if you think of biology, for example, biology has transformed considerably over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, it used to be teaching biology was very much like teaching a 
foreign language. It's it's um, it was very descriptive. Now it's much more computational, right? But we have, but we haven't stopped teaching biology to accommodate people sort of coming to consensus as to a modern definition. We understand, you know, there is still this thing called biology that has certain fundamental qualities. And, and the same thing goes for critical thinking. We, I think we've really understood it well enough since the time of Dewey to teach it. And now we truly understand it, multiple facets, multiple facets in order to progress to a better means of teaching critical thinking in our education system, but also becoming critical thinkers as individuals and hopefully building a critical thinking society. There are so many people who believe that critical thinking can't be defined. Uh, where do you think that misconception comes from? You know, I, I would say it partly derives from some of the debate that goes on in the critical thinking community. You know, there, there are scholars, there are people who um, teach critical thinking, particularly at the college level, and, and do research on it. And, and there are indeed, you know, over a dozen different definitions for critical thinking. I, I document many of them in the new book. Um, so I think, you know, that sort of can create a perception that it's uh, definition is up for grabs or it's unknown. But, you know, but as I just said, if you look through those definitions, um, it, it, it seems seem fairly clear, at least to me, that there is a practical consensus. It is that sort of three-part model of knowledge, skills, and dispositions. And that is more than enough to sort of move forward with a critical thinking enterprise. So I think, um, you know, that's one myth. I, I think there's also another myth in the other direction that, you know, if you ask educators, you know, K-12 educators, college professors, you know, to rank their sort of top three priorities as teachers, almost all of them, well over 90% would say, you know, preparing their students to be critical thinkers. And so I think um, there's a perception that teachers are already doing this, right, because they perceive that they're you know, smart teachers, skilled teachers teaching complex material that sort of of critical thinking is just part of that. So I think that's another myth that um, the sense that that uh, critical thinking is, you know, not so much a set of discrete skills that we need to kind of inventory, understand, develop pedagogies around and teach, it sort of has more of this sort of amorphous perception. There's a, a not an understanding that thinking and critically thinking are sort of two different things. And so the, the knowledge, the skills and dispositions that come from critical thinking, uh, why are those important to us as individuals or to us uh, within our society? Well, you know, at a very fundamental level, I mean, you can sort of get back to, um, you know, John Dewey's notion of reflective thinking, right? He, he he was kind of in a debate with other thinkers of the time over the nature of democracy. You know, his most famous book was, was Democracy and Education. And at the time, there was a kind of growing perception that as the world became more complex and more sophisticated, you know, particularly as as modernity was really sort of taking root in the late 19th and early 20th century, that things have become so complex that kind of rule by all, you know, democracy um, just wasn't effective anymore, that you really needed to be ruled by experts. Only experts could understand the sheer complexity of the world 
and could help, you know, navigate society through it, sort of the idea of technocracy. And Dewey rejected that. He felt that, you know, citizens were capable of understanding and knowing enough to fulfill their sort of democratic responsibilities. But in order to do so, you had to sort of, of create democratic citizens who knew how to think properly. And that's what, you know, how we think was really about. You need to not just sort of uh, um, decide things or vote with your guts or based on your emotions. You needed some form of systematic reasoning to make decisions, you know, make decisions as individuals, make decisions as democratic citizens, make decisions as being part of a society. And, and if we just sort of reflect on our own lives, right? You know, we've all made decisions based on gut instincts, and we've also made decisions based on sort of uh, systematically thinking things through. And I, I would guess if you inventoried, you know, the decisions you made in your life, probably, you know, the decisions you made after reflection went better on the whole. Not that sort of gut instinct hasn't, hasn't um, you know, led to good outcomes sometime, but in general, sort of being able to think things through is advantageous to us as individuals, as citizens, as members of a society. So, you know, so those are the advantages. Now, then there's a the question of how do you do that, right? Just sort of reflecting is, is fine, but what critical thinking does is it gives you a specific set of tools for performing that sort of reflection, right? It, it's you, you have a set of language tools. So you can take this very complex thing we do with each other when we're conversing or when we're writing editorials or reading, um, you know, complex material, editorials, advertisements, et cetera, to be able to take that and sort of, uh, of peer through the rhetoric and sort of distill it down to a set of structured statements that can be fit into an argument. And then that argument can be analyzed for quality, right? So that's, you know, that's where logic comes in. Um, so, you know, all these things are things that they certainly benefited me through my life as, um, you know, if I think through, you know, my time in business, but also, you know, my time in, in education and, and even, you know, personal life interacting with family members and friends, there's been few things that have paid off more than the critical thinkers toolkit in terms of being able to address decisions, address problems, using a set of tools, some of which are over 2,500 years old, that sort of tend to provide you better answers than just sort of going with gut instinct. How do you think Dewey's belief in fostering a democratic citizen citizenry has held up over the last hundred years? How are we doing? Um, what do you think he would think about uh, where we're at in 2020? You know, well, his faith in democracy, you know, was almost sort of of religious in his strength. So I don't think he would sort of be giving up on it. And, and he was, you know, um, not under any illusion that the sort of, of complexity of society meant um, that that there will be a role for experts as well as democratic citizens. Um, you know, I, it's hard to channel Dewey at this time, but I think um, understanding, you know, Dewey both as a um, educator, but also as a philosopher, I think uh, a, a lot of his principles were based on a um, philosophical 
school called Pragmatism, which is the only philosophical school to emerge from the United States. Uh, he was also heavily influenced by Darwin and Darwinian evolution, and he, he really saw sort of man, human beings as not a sort of free-floating mind. You know, I know I'm getting into, into more philosophy here, but not a sort of, of you know, autonomous mind a la, a la Descartes, nor as a blank slate that uh, sort of both educators or parents or people write on. He saw people as the result of endless interactions they have with each other, with society, uh, with the environment, and that we are shaped that way uh, through these sort of uh, countless complex uh, connections we have um, you know, with our environment, with other people. You know, I, I think he would probably look at kind of modern society and see many things he saw in the kind of early 20th century, um, you know, more sophisticated technologies, certainly, um, uh, you know, a uh, far more kind of, of uh, centralized and powerful governments than you saw in the early 20th century. You know, but I think he would also ask us to step and kind of reflect on how is the kind of universe that we interact with, how is that shaping us as human beings? I I would guess he would be very fascinated with how the internet and sort of social media has sort of changed us, even as even as we have sort of built these tools, you know, human beings built these tools, but at the same time, these tools are uh, transforming us as we interact with them, you know. So I certainly don't think he would sort of give up on his hope that we as democratic citizens can rise to the occasion. I think he would certainly feel that now more than ever, we need to become reflective thinkers and take responsibility for our own thoughts and beliefs rather than sort of outsource that to um, to a party or an ideology or some of the things that have sort of short circuit our reasoning. They've always out, but I think even more so today. How do you think modern technology or more centralized government has made critical thinking easier or more difficult uh, to promote? Uh, well, I think, you know, centralized government is, um, you know, that's just something we've had to contend with, with modernity, right? That that power kind of both flows up, you know, if you think about uh, de Tocqueville, who was writing about uh, America in the, um, uh, early 19th century, he sort of talked about a society organized from sort of, of the ground up, unlike aristocratic societies, centralized societies in Europe, where kind of people turn to the monarch for both protection, but also for, for what they needed. In America, kind of, of people relied on locality until they sort of couldn't, and then they would sort of, of um kind of, of turn to, say, the state or ultimately the nation. But I think over time, de Tocqueville wrote about how, you know, any responsibility that an individual wants to give up, you know, the the, the next level up of, of government will happily take that over, whether it's um, caring for the elderly, you know, educating the young, you know. So I think he certainly would have seen that um, increasing centralization, particularly in areas of education, as... Um, Generating opportunity, but also risk, right? If you have um, education as we do in the United States, 
organized by school districts or organized by locality, but also increasingly um, centralized elites at the state level. Uh, you could see opportunities there, right? If you if you look at state standards, for example, um, state academic standards, uh, particularly over the last 20 years, those have evolved very much to capture a lot of the spirit of critical thinking. A lot of them include, if you look at things like Common Core, uh, concepts involving not just um, rote knowledge to be memorized, but sort of skills, critical thinking skills to be um to be um, um, practiced, learned and practiced. So I'd say it's probably, you know, the increasing centralization is probably a bit of a mixed bag in terms of, of you know, advantageous, uh, disadvantageous to critical thinking. I, I think, you know, um, our technology and social media in particular, that's another quite mixed bag. Um, I think, you know, I was certainly around when, you know, in, the internet was sort of democratizing information or democratizing journalism, citizen journalism. Uh, you know, that that free degree I took on in philosophy, right? That would have been impossible without the internet. You know, now I'm able to was able to take 32 college level courses for nothing, taught you know wonderfully by many brilliant teachers. So there's many wonderful aspects of the internet. Um, there's many wonderful aspects in terms of, you know, citizen activism. But I think certainly over the last, you know, particularly the last five or six years, we've started to see some of the dark side of uh, the, these, these same tools, right? The, the ability to let information sort of, of run free and the, but the fact that we have, you know, a million libraries of Alexandria in our pocket and we can look up whatever it is we want to know. That's fabulous. And to a certain extent, that creates uh, another reason to develop our critical thinking skills since the knowledge, the data we need, we don't necessarily need to memorize it anymore. We have it at our fingertips. So it's a question of what are you going to do with that knowledge and how are you going to think, I think critically about it. But it's also, you know, the internet, as we well know, has been a source of misinformation and tribalism and emotional reasoning and um, a sort of coarsening of discourse. And I think certainly over the last four or five years, we've seen, you know, Internet norms, not and not particularly good ones, sort of seep out into the, the physical world. So I'd say, you know, in a way, you know, critical thinking is a way for us to capture, get back that sort of ability to think for ourselves, to be autonomous, to not be driven by, you know, what I refer to, you know, frequently now as sort of mob or herd mentality, uh, but to be, you know, truly free and autonomous thinkers. So I think, uh, you know, critical thinking in a way as an opportunity to liberate us from the darker sides of internet culture, which is sort of creeping into our life, and then potentially return to a time when, you know, the free flow of information is there to empower us rather than to enslave us. How might you recognize critical thinking in someone else, either in your classroom or in an informal setting? That is, that is a great question. Um, you know, I... Yes, I would would certainly look for telltale signs of the skill set being put to use, right? I think if somebody is um, reasoning, that means they 
kind of, you know, may take the time to, let's say they're engaging in conversation to sort of, of translate sort of things that are being said in sort of everyday discourse into something more systematic. So, you know, if I was hearing statements such as, okay, so what I hear you saying is so-and-so, and that so-and-so is a accurate and charitable distillation of what someone else has, has, has been saying, that would be a telltale sign. I think if I could see logic at work, right, you know, people are realizing, you know, these statements are the premises in an argument, and those premises either support or do not support the conclusions, they wouldn't necessarily be using that language. They wouldn't necessarily be saying, okay, so you have premise one is this, premise two is that, your conclusion is that, but it's unsound. You know, they, they might be thinking that, and some people might actually be using that vocabulary. But if I could see that process unfolding, if I could see somebody noticing, for example, that, you know, in an argument with somebody that their opponent's premises don't necessarily lead to the conclusion and can explain why, that would be a telltale sign of a critical thinker. I think that the, the sign I would most look for is the dispositions I was talking about before. I think if somebody is open-minded, right, if they're not just sort of shouting down somebody's opinion that they disagree with or shutting it out or translating it uncharitably, so they start arguing with a parody of something someone else has said, you know, if they show signs that they, you know, truly have the sort of, of dispositions of a critical thinker, open-mindedness, curiosity, charitability to other people's opinions, uh, intellectual humility, you know, uh, understanding that they may not know everything, but also intellectual courage, that the willingness to argue their position strongly when they feel that it's it's based on sound reasoning. I guess that's what I would look for as my tells if I was trying to determine if somebody was a critical thinker. Easier to tell when somebody is not, I guess. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So is, does it make sense to you to analogize critical thinking to a foreign language? And can critical thinkers communicate successfully with those who aren't? That is, that's an interesting analogy. I hadn't thought about that um, in those terms. I mean, there is a sort of kind of foreign language area of it in that you you do have to take everyday language, right? If you and I are having a debate or a discussion, or if I'm reading a editorial or trying to determine a political ad, right? I have to take that language, which is you know written in everyday communication, but also often contains rhetoric that's designed to persuade, but sometimes also mislead. 
So there is certainly a um, translation component to it. But um, I think, you know, there, there's probably also the need that if, if, if you've mastered the critical thinking skill set, you know, and you are discussing or debating something with somebody who has not, you know, that that has a uh, quality similar to the conversation you'd have with somebody who the language you're talking in is not their first language in that, you know, certainly when I've been on either side of a conversation in a language I don't understand, I think there's a general understanding that the other person is equally intelligent, if not more so. They just don't necessarily have the language skills to carry on a conversation at the same level as a native speaker. And I think, you know, critical thinking is the same. You have people who, plenty of people who have sort of got instincts, they think well, they may not have learned the critical thinkers toolkit, they may not have, uh, you know, mastered the sort of vocabulary around it, but that's, that's fine. They may still sort of instinctively think in a sort of sound and reasoned way. And I think it's a question of, you know, a somebody who has mastered the tool set sort of appreciating that and understanding the conversation still can be taking place at a high level, even if everybody involved does not sort of, you know, understand the structure of an argument, for example, or the concept of validity and soundness. You could still have a perfectly reasoned and, and high level discussion. So, yeah, I guess uh, there are components of, you know, Speaking with speaking in different languages, I, I, I don't want to give the impression, though, that um, you know uh, uh, somebody who thinks critically is a sort of separate species or is in some way sort of, of you know superior to someone who does not know the skill set. This is a, a very basic skill set. It's something anybody can master. It's something everybody should master. And I think you know one of the Virtues, I think, a critical thinker should embrace is the ability to sort of inspire others to kind of follow the same path. So when you're interacting with K-12 teachers who tell you they are promoting critical thinking in their classrooms, what might they tell you they're doing? And what might you suggest they begin doing or doing differently? One of the key frameworks to understanding a very sort of telltale gap, right? If, like I said, if you talk to teachers or college professors, way more than ninety percent, close to ninety-five to you know as much as ninety-nine percent, will tell you developing their their students' critical thinking skills are top priority, right? But if you talk to employers who are hiring students who've just gone through twelve or sixteen or more years of school. 75% of them will tell you that the students they hire, the people they hire, do not have those skills, right? So so there's not an enthusiasm gap, right? Teachers are all excited and want their students to be critical thinkers, but something's missing. And I think one of the keys to understanding why this might be the case uh, came out of some research I, I, I did uh, in the new book on how critical thinking is best taught. There was a, a very famous paper written, I think, in the 1980s by a, a professor, a critical thinking professor called uh, Enos Serenis. I, I can't remember how to pronounce it, but he proposed that there are three different ways critical thinking can be taught. Uh, one is called a general approach, and the general approach is basically critical thinking is a course unto itself, right? You're going to learn critical thinking as its own subject matter, 
that's what's on the syllabus. And that's generally how we teach critical thinking in higher education. Not all, but many colleges have critical thinking courses. In the University of California system, for example, is actually required to take a critical thinking course. That's a general approach course where professors, often from the philosophy department, but also from other departments, you know, they teach a course in critical thinking and they draw examples from other fields, you know, current events, science, et cetera, to teach it. But it's, it's taught as its own thing. Okay. Then there's another process called immersion. Okay. And immersion is where, you know, smart teachers teaching complex material just presume that critical thinking is coming along for the ride. Right. And that's how we teach critical thinking in K-12. For the most part, you've got, you know, a skilled teaching workforce. They're teaching sophisticated material. They may be instinctive critical thinkers themselves, but they're assuming that through this process, students are developing their critical thinking skills. But as it turns out, critical thinking is a skill set, right? You do need to learn some form of logic. You do need some skill and practice at, you know, certain language abilities, uh, especially, as I mentioned, translating everyday language into structured statements that can be analyzed in a logical argument, et cetera, et cetera. And those skills really need to be explicitly taught, right? They, they don't just come along for the ride. They don't, they don't, they don't, they aren't learned through osmosis. Um, so the third uh, type of, of, um, of teaching of critical thinking, um, third of Coach is called infusion, where you actually uh, add the direct instruction or add instruction of critical thinking skills into the teaching of traditional co content. The example I like to use is a math teacher, right? You know, at some point, a math teacher is going to teach, or geometry teacher is going to teach students how to do geometric proofs, right? Well, geometric proofs are an ideal example of deductive logic, and deductive logic is a core critical thinking principle. Okay, but how many math teachers stop and say, by the way, this thing I just taught you, geometric proofs, that's a form of deductive logic. Let me teach you what deductive logic is. Or maybe even say, and let me contrast that with inductive logic, which is the primary form of logic used in science, which should be a topic a science teacher picks up on. You know, so I think where the gap is, that sort of large gap between teacher enthusiasm for teaching critical thinking skills and the apparent lack of, of end result is they're just using the wrong method. And I think I, met, I mentioned the sort of high leverage practices that I've been developing. That's a key. One of the key practices is explicit instruction and key critical thinking skills woven into the curriculum. Now, this doesn't, the thing that's good about that sort of approach is it doesn't require you to you know, get rid of a course and make room for a new general critical thinking course, right? We're not going to get rid of social studies and replace of critical thinking. That would be bad, as well as not even the most effective way of teaching it. Because it turns out the infusion method research seems, research seems to indicate is the best method for teaching critical thinking. And you don't need to teach critical thinking skills every single day, right? That math example I used, right? That's a perfect time to teach deductive reasoning, but you don't have to teach deductive reasoning when students are learning how to use a protractor, for example. That's just a general core math skill. So really, I think the way to move forward, and, and the thing that's good about this is it doesn't require you to tear down the curriculum and start over again, um, nor does it even mean you need to um, you know, veer from the standards. As I mentioned, the sort of academic standards 
have plenty of room for ways of thinking, um, critical th- that, that many of them would fall in the category of critical thinking. It's just sort of taking that time to understand when a particular critical thinking principle is appropriately woven into the instruction of core material that can come into arguing a position when you're in a history course or analyzing editorial or uh, writing an argumentative essay, for example, in an English course. Uh, so th- those are the things I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, these sort of practices and there's, a, you know, eight of them all together, but they all essentially involve allowing teachers to do what they claim they want to do already, right? That's why I feel like the glass is half full, right? You don't have to convince a teacher that critical thinking is a good thing and that they should teach their students that they already think it's a good thing. They already want to do it, but they're just not using the right methodology, right? It turns out the immersion approach is the least effective way. Uh, The infusion approach, where you're teaching explicitly at, at certain points, is the most effective way. And, you know, if you step and think about it, I mean, we're both educators, that makes perfect sense, right? You know, um, to if you want students to learn something, you should teach it to them explicitly, not assume it's coming along for the ride, right? No no sane educator would say, well, why are we teaching students math, right? They, they're going to get all the math they need in physics. Let's just like teach them physics and then they'll learn math or osmosis. osmosis. That would be nuts. But the same thing, like without critical thinking being an explicit part of the curriculum, then why, why should we expect students to master skills we haven't taught them? Can you share an example of maybe a high school teacher who is using the infusion approach successfully? What did that look like? Well, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was involved with a group called Thinker Analytics, uh, which teaches a form of logic called argument mapping. And argument mapping, I won't get deep detail, but it's a it's a form of of um, graphical uh, graphical reasoning that's particularly good with younger learners, um, particularly middle and high school students pick it up very well since it's not as complex as some other forms of of, of logic. Um, so that they teach to um, middle and high school English and social studies teachers, and it's essentially a graphical design so that your, you know, a- any statement you make has to be supported, just like a premise supports a conclusion. Um, and you, you could picture that as a hierarchy, like of, of boxes, right? And so if somebody is arguing that, you know, um, Napoleon had plans to invade the United States, right? Let's say it's a history course and people are debating um, the sort of early days of the Republic and the interrelationship between America and France at that time, right? Well, if you want to make the claim that Napoleon had plans to invade the United States, you need to be able to uh, kind of show your reasoning. You need to be able to marshal facts, but not just marshal facts, but show how those facts lead to your conclusion that Napoleon had had his sights on invading the United States. Well, you know, in our traditional kind of writing modalities, you know, the sort of five-paragraph essay, even the outline, I mean, the outline is a valuable way of organizing how you want to sequence your sentences, but it's not a particularly good way of showing how your thoughts fit together. Right. So uh, so there are some teachers in, in you know, my school system here. I live in a suburb of Boston that have been trained in the information mapping method. 
And when they teach students how to plan an essay, particularly an argumentative essay, they don't start with the outline, you know, the sort of Roman numerals, A, B, C, D. They start with an argument map. They say, okay, what is what is the point you're trying to uh, argue? You know, what what is the conclusion you want people to believe? I want them to believe Napoleon had plans to invade the United States. Okay, what makes you think that's the case? You know, and then, okay, well, there's, you know, this piece of evidence, um, this piece of historical evidence, there's this historic document. But then the crucial piece that's missing from outline is what connects those premises to the conclusion, right? What is, you know, what we call in, in logical argumentation, we call warrant, reasons for belief. Okay, that's what's missing in the five-paragraph essay. That's what's missing in the outline is not just here's my conclusion, here's my evidence, but what are the reasons for belief? What are the explicit reasons that the evidence leads to the conclusion? You know, that is made much more clear when you're using an argument map. It's also made much more clear when you're using informal arguments or other forms of, of logic. It's made much more clear when you're taking a critical thinking approach to the subject as opposed to a straight writing approach. So, so there's an example where argumentative essays, you know, essays and historical debates even, you, you know, um, some of the social studies teachers that we talk to are using this technique when students are debating issues. And, you know, debates, as you can imagine, in classes can get quite heated, especially when it's about current affairs. But if you can ask your students to, okay, well, step back and uh, can you identify what is the conclusion you're trying to get people to believe? Okay. You know, what are your premises? Okay. Does everybody agree on these premises? Okay. We agree on these premises. Why don't we believe the conclusion? And then you could have a debate over kind of reasons for belief. And then you, then you're on your way to sort of not just having more civilized discussions and debates, but you're on your way to being a critical thinker. How can parents and teachers support critical thinking or pre-critical thinking skills in young children? Well, you know, it's not entirely clear. And again, you know, the research that I did for the book, it's not entirely clear that there's a lower limit to when students can start learning critical thinking skills. There's an interesting project in the UK uh, called the uh, P4C, Philosophy for Children uh, Project, where they were going into elementary school grades and having kids uh, do engage in actual philosophical conversations. Um, at very early grades, you know, about age-specific topics, you know, bullying and those kind of things, but using the sort of philosopher's toolkit, which is, is really also the critical thinker's toolkit. And it turned out not only did the students um, kind of do well in that class, but they improved in all their classes, particularly in, in English and math, you know, interesting enough, and, and interesting enough, especially among lower-income students. So, so I think, you know, there's simpler versions of the critical thinkers toolkit you would obviously use for uh, younger learners. They become more sophisticated over time. Um, but I'd say, you know, for very young learners, you're asking about sort of teachers and parents. I mean, teachers, I think, understanding what are age-specific critical thinking skills and infuse that into curriculum. That's, you know, step one. And there's other pieces, you know, that I, I describe as sort of high-level practices they can use. But I think one thing teachers, but particularly families can do is start instilling critical thinking dispositions into children at a very young age, you know, start teaching children to be open-minded and curious and 
charitable towards other people's opinions. You know, in fact, I often say that, you know, by the time somebody takes a critical thinking course in college, it might be too late, right? Because they've, their biases have hardened due to um, how they've been brought up or beliefs they've, they've adopted at an early age that have never been challenged because they live in a community where essentially everybody shares the same political beliefs. So they never had to really argue a position. So I'd say one challenge, I think, for families is if you want, you, you can't sort of, of raise them in a dogmatic household then somehow hope they will magically think critically, you know, sometime in the future. Either they're going to rebel against dogma, but then that rebellion will probably just end up in embracing a different dogma, right? But instead, if you could sort of get people to show open-mindedness, um, and, and particularly in our polarized age, I think if young people can be exposed to uh, the fact that, you know, other opinions are legitimate, even if you don't agree with them, that's a step in the right direction. And in fact, I, I should know my my whole kind of critical thinking journey started in um, 2008 when the 2008 presidential election was happening. And, um, you know, I live in a partisan, I have a partisan family in a partisan town. It was very clear who everybody was going to vote for. But at the time, I had two young kids, uh, five and eight at the time. And I sort of saw them being actually quite rude about the opposition candidate. They were saying things that we would never tolerate if they're talking about other adults that way. And it dawned on me they'd gotten that from us, right? They've they've gotten, you know, they've gotten that from the adults around them, the belief that you can express utter contempt for somebody because they politically disagree with you. So I'd say in many ways my sort of critical thinking project was an attempt to undo that and hopefully teach people that you can have strong beliefs, including strong partisan beliefs, but it shouldn't sort of, of congeal into dogma that makes you impervious to understanding somebody else. Going forward, um, what gives you optimism about uh, more widespread adoption of critical thinking practices? And what challenges do you think proponents of critical thinking face in the years ahead? You know, well, I mean, there's obviously a lot to be pessimistic about, you know, that I'd say, uh, you know, I joke that since critical voter, you know, there was a, a podcast in 2012, it was a book in 2016. I'm coming out with a new edition uh, this year, and it, it's fair to say things have not been going in the right direction during that time, right? We've become more polarized. We've become more isolated in terms of our information sources, and that's a direct outgrowth of new technologies that allow us to seal ourselves into bubbles where we only get facts that comport with what we want to believe already. We've also isolated ourselves into communities, right? There was already a tremendous self-sorting that was going on in terms of, of people, you know, living in neighborhoods and towns and even states where everybody shares their opinions. Uh, but now, you know, if you do happen to have an iconoclastic opinion, you could just go online to jump into a community that everybody agrees already. So, and I think we're seeing the results of that, right? You know, we're seeing, um, you know, how much of our politics is being driven um, not by reason, not by thoughtfulness, but just sort of, of kind of 
of the ability to spite our opponents. Uh, there's not even, uh, in fact, you know, nearly as much sort of ideological fervor about the issues I could see. It's really a question of, you know, what is the other side like? And then I'm going to, you know, change my opinion to hate that. So, you know, and, and there's a lot of factors that have been leading to that, uh, political factors, um, changes in party politics. Uh, obviously, you know, we talked about uh, new technology, decline of the media, the rise of social media. So there's a lot to be pessimistic about. I would say to a certain extent that pessimism, uh, maybe we stretch to say it gives me hope, but I would say, you know, people are realizing that, you know, all this sort of, of hyper-partisanship is not leaving them feeling more empowered, right? People are feeling things are out of control. I think particularly now, right? We're navigating um, a micro, a deadly microbe, you know, something that we have to make evaluations of. We have to make evaluations of the science behind it. We have to evaluate sort of levels of risk we're going to take, you know, all these things we need to reason about, right? Where, where we can't argue with a microbe. We need to sort of, of think about systematically, um, you know, how we're going to live our lives. And I would say people, you know, do feel dissatisfied with, you know, uh, pandemic politics. I think, you know, I'm hoping that will lead to some acceptance of the notion that, you know, there are certain things that uh, we should be thinking about using, you know, our reason, using the most powerful thing humans have ever evolved, uh, as opposed to, you know, just sort of falling back on partisanship and tribalism. So I think, you know, that makes me optimistic. I think, you know, in education, the fact that so many teachers want to do this, you know, the fact that they think they're doing it already and they don't happen to be using the best technique, well, that's that's good news, right? Because it just means it's no small thing, but getting teachers to start teaching using uh, better techniques to accomplish what they already want to accomplish. As I mentioned, sort of there's recognition, uh, at least when you look at state standards, that critical thinking is important and is even elements that sort of, of break it down and build it into the curriculum. So I think there's sort of building blocks there. Um, you know, I, I, I guess it's, I'm just hoping things don't have to get so bad that uh, everything falls apart. And we have to start from scratch. I think if we can start acting as critical thinkers, as individuals, start treating each other with respect, start like arguing as opposed to shouting, you know, that'll create a virtuous cycle. People will be realize, oh, I'm, I'm getting more out of like, you know, arguing my position rather than just embracing it and ignoring anybody who doesn't agree with it. You know, I'm, I'm getting something out of arguing with somebody who I completely disagree with. And, and I, I even got something out of the fact that we ended up not coming to a conclusion, but we agreed to disagree, but I've been changed in the process. So if readers could have just one takeaway from your book, uh, what would you hope it would be? You know, I, I hope it would be that Critical thinking is a skill, and it's a skill that anybody can master. Uh, this is not something that is just for the few. It's a set of, of, of kind of knowledge, skills, and dispositions that, as I describe in the new book and and in Critical Voter, my original book on critical thinking, How to Guide. Uh, you know, these are skills you could actually 
pick up and learn the basics of very quickly uh, when I was teaching them as part of the sort of critical, critical voter curriculum or even doing other critical thinking education work, uh, understanding informal logic, understanding how to translate uh, everyday language into structured statements that could be analyzed for validity and soundness. So, uh, these principles, and you know, there are about uh, less than a dozen of them, you know, they, they can all be picked up in days. Uh, the trick is that you have to then put them to use. You have to practice them. Uh, an education referred to as deliberate practice, practice specifically geared to improve your critical thinking skills. And that takes time, but it's worth the effort. And I'm hoping people put the effort into it will realize, oh, you know, I seem to be making better choices than I did before. I seem to understand what's going on uh, before I started sort of, of applying kind of logical principles or checking for my own biases or researching information based on information literacy principles, you know, and then as you go along with that, it becomes a virtual cycle, right? The more benefit you get in your life, the more you want to practice and utilize these skills. So I guess, you know, my, my big hope for a takeaway is people don't see critical thinking as a great unknown, right? We talked before that it is not this mysterious thing. It's a very concrete set of skills that anybody can master. It's far less complex than many subjects that kids study uh, all the way through school, um, you know, science subjects, uh, history subjects, et cetera. So I hope people will take the time to learn them and start putting them to use, start practicing them. And I hope they'll see what they could do for their own lives. And, and over the course of time of using them more and more, I hope they'll realize that they actually uh, long range are our benefit to all of us, to society, but to everybody. What are three other books or resources you might recommend to our listeners who enjoy your book or enjoyed our conversation today? Uh, well, uh, you know, well, a, lot of, a lot of books on logic tend to be tech books, but one book I really have enjoyed and, and recommend all the time is Jay Heinrich's Thank You for Arguing. Uh, it is uh, essentially more about rhetoric, uh, but it's really about sort of, of um communication and many of the principles that I talk about and, and critical voter in particular are uh, uh, subjects that Heinrich covers in more depth. So that's one book I would recommend. Uh, I think if people want to learn critical thinking, you know, there, there are books you could buy, but there's also a couple of courses, uh, some of them free. Um, one I recommend is a course from Duke University called uh, Think Again which is a MOOC, a massive open online course. I think I mentioned earlier, I had taken a whole bunch of these a few years ago. And in fact, Think Again was the first MOOC I ever took. Uh, and it's quite a good introduction to critical thinking principles. It goes a, a bit deeper into some of the principles of logic uh, than I've gone through, and that's great. I think people could get uh, really sort of, of hooked on it. So that's one resource. There's other uh, another place I point people towards is... Uh, Kevin, De, Kevin De La Plant is a former philosophy professor, but he's since gone full-time providing free resources uh, on how to think critically through something called the Critical, Critical Thinker Academy. He's also recently started something called Argument Ninja. But if you look for Kevin De La Plant or Google him or Critical Thinker Academy, there's a lot of free material, mostly videos that are excellent and a, a great introduction. Uh, to critical thinking ideas. I, I think if people get sort of 
uh, hooked a little bit on philosophy. I think you know you don't need to know philosophy to be a critical thinker, but you know my journey uh, was sort of steeped in philosophy, and I really um, have been happy to have gone through it. So there's two books by I think it's Anthony Gottlieb. Uh, the Dream of Reason is the first one, which is essentially it's a history of philosophy. And A Dream of Reason is really an introduction to classical philosophy all the way up to the early medieval period. So that's if you want an introduction to the big three, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, but also those who came before and after. So those are ones I would point people towards. Finally, can you tell us a little bit about your next project and how our listeners can follow your work? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, as I mentioned, I'm doing an update of Critical Voter. So if you go to criticalvoter.com, there'll be news of that probably in the next uh, few weeks. I'm trying to get something out in time for uh, as people kind of roll into the 2020 election. Uh, I have also have a, a website called Logic Check, logiccheck.net. And that is modeled after fact-checking sites like factcheck.org and uh, PolitiFact. But instead of checking the facts behind the news, is checking the reasoning behind the news and going through you know all the various critical thinking principles that I've been talking about, but applying it to current events. Uh, if you're looking for uh, some of my work in education, I've got uh, yet another site called Degree of Freedom. That's degreeoffreedom.org. That sort of consolidates a lot of my MOOC work, a lot of the work I'm doing in education and online education, and also includes uh, details on those high leverage critical thinking practices that I mentioned earlier. Those are practices that allow you to integrate critical thinking instruction into traditional subjects. And and if anybody wants to uh, reach out to me directly, uh, I'm at Jonathan at degreeoffreedom.org. I Love talking to people about this stuff, as you could probably tell. So if anybody wants to learn more, they're free to contact me directly. Thank you so much for sharing your resources with us. Um, Jonathan, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Oh, it was a real pleasure, Trevor. I've enjoyed it. And uh, best of luck with all the work you're doing. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.